Good morning again. Today we will be in Mark 9, finishing up chapter 9 as we are in our series through the book of Mark. We'll be in the last few verses, verses 42 through 50. And would just like to just acknowledge something as you're um, coming to introduce this text. I'm not going to make light of it because it's not a light text. This is a very strong, heavy, weighty text, maybe one of the weightiest ones that is in the book of Mark. But it is still good, even though it's weighty. Even though it's hard, it's still good for us to hear and to um, be hit by it in some ways. So Mark 9, verses 42 through 50, I'll read our text, and then I'll pray. Verse 42 begins this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet than to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God than one eye, than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. What a high cost our sin is, Lord. Would you cut it off from our lives? And would we fall in line with you in cutting it off? From our time in here, would you show us the great cost of our sin, that it's worth more than our life, It's worth eternity in hell. It's worth our Christianity. That if we are living and continuing in perpetual sin, it is very clear we are not salt and we don't know you. Help us in this time to see our sin and to cut it off where it would no longer exist and the cause of these things would not exist anymore in our lives. God, I cannot do this work in my own life or in our congregation's life. So we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, please do it. I ask you, Lord, please do it in my life. Use this time to cut my sin off from my own life. Thank you for your grace that we all fall short of your glory and you give us hope in the redemption we have in Christ, even when we don't cut off our sin. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. There's an old fable that goes something like this. There is a dog who is sitting on some grass or he's in a field and he's among a bunch of other dogs and they are just laying there baking out in the hot sun one day. And it's about lunchtime, about around noon, when these dogs are laying in this field and a hare begins to go by the dogs. And one of the dogs in the field begins to think, hmm, hare looks pretty good over there. A little plump. That might just be my lunch today. And so one of the dogs, among all the other dogs, begin to get up. He rears back, and the hare kind of notices. And the hare takes off, but the dog takes off right after him. 
and the hare begins to bolt and bound and jump away, but the dog is fast after it. The hare runs through trees. The dog runs after him after those trees. The hare bolts through some bushes. The dog runs after the bushes. The dog is nipping at his tail, nipping at his legs. He is in hot pursuit of the hare. But then the hare sees some thorns. And the hare bolts straight through the thorns. And the dog is running, running, running. And he stops. And he's lost his lunch. Dog puts his head down, his ears down, tail between his legs begin to walk back to the other dogs. And the other dogs begin to jeer and joke at him. I thought you were so big and so fast and so strong, yet you could not catch such a little animal as this. It was a wee little hare. And you were going after lunch, and now you have nothing. And now you're more tired than when you had gotten up to go and get that hare. And the dog, just hearing this and all these jeers and all this criticism, and he sits down. And he says, I want you to know one thing. That hair, sorry, I want you to know one thing. I was running for my lunch, but that hair, he was running for his life. The point of the little parable or fable is the greater the stakes, the greater the cost it is to your life, the faster you're going to run. The harder you're going to work, the more you're going to fight. If it's worth to you more, you're going to give more to it. And Mark 9, verses 42 through 50 wants to do the same thing with us today. Mark wants to say, the fight the race, the battle against sin and the stakes of losing that battle and the cost of losing that battle couldn't be higher. Oh, it is high. And he is going to give us three great costs today that are going to show us the cost of sin and if we continue on in sin. And he is going to show that we must fight. And we must fight in such an active way where we are seeking to not just stop sinning, but we are wanting to kill sin. Because as the great European theologian John Owen said, if you're not killing sin, sin will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, the cost of sin couldn't be higher according to this text. And I want us to learn from this text to fight with all that is in us, to run like the hare, but run even faster with all of our might to fight against sin. Because there are three great costs in this text. And we want to see that it is worth everything in us to fight against us. So what will sin cost you? Here's the first thing. Here's the first thing that sin will cost you. It will cost you more than your life. More than your life. Look at verse 42 with me if you would. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now that is a strong image. It's a graphic image. It's somewhat of an obscene image, but we will even get much more obscene. But what Jesus wants to do with these imageries is he wants to use emphatic language and he wants to use hyperbole to grab your attention. And he wants to show you this is what your sin is worth. This is how much it costs. And he begins by talking about corporate sin, by communal sin, 
with how your sin begins to affect others. And what Jesus begins with is he says, look at the way your sin begins to affect those you're around, especially those who are young in the faith. Jesus says, a little one, look at him. If you cause him to sin, there is going to be great consequences for your sin. Now with this comes a question. Well, who is the little one that Jesus is talking about this at this moment? There's debate over this text who the little one is. It could be the child that Jesus had brought among his disciples back earlier in the text in Mark 9 when he was talking about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It could be a literal child. Or it could be just a young believer, a believer who has just come to faith in Christ, a babe in the faith, as we would say, someone who is young in their understanding of Christianity. But in either understanding, whether it is an actual child or it's just someone who's young in their faith, it doesn't really matter. What matters is this one who is a little one who believes in Jesus is two things. This one is dependent upon someone else and they also are very impressionable. They are dependent and very impressionable. They're dependent. They're dependent upon someone else to teach them the word. They're dependent upon someone else to show them how to walk in righteousness. They're dependent upon someone else to teach them how to pray. But they're also very impressionable. They're impressionable because the things that they see someone do as an example to them are going to begin to affect them and they're going to begin to replicate the very things they begin to see. A great example of what is dependent and, or someone who is dependent and someone who is impressionable is my daughter Ellis. Now, Ellis is not a believer, but she is very much dependent and impressionable. Dependent, my daughter, if she wants to get up in her high chair or if she wants to put her books away, or she wants to get toys out from a place she can't get. And yes, even though she wants to be very independent on her own, when it comes to getting those toys and getting up in that high chair, she will let out a squeak and she will say, help me. It's the cry of being dependent because she can't even do the little tasks like a young believer who can't even do the little things in their faith yet. But it's not only that she's just dependent upon Ashley and I to help her get up in her high chair. She's also very impressionable. I don't know how this happened, but my daughter Ellis loves cell phones. <laughs> Have no idea. But Ellis has probably three of them, more than I do. Now, they don't work, and they don't have any batteries to them. But she loves to grab them, put them in her little purse, pull them out. Hi, Mama. Hi, Daddy. Hi, Baba. Hi, Lolly. That's the grandparents. Bye. Quick conversation. Where did she get that from? You know where. Ellis is dependent and impressionable. And Ellis is a small example of what a young believer is like. A young believer who is learning how to walk in the faith a young believer who is learning how to pursue holiness, a young believer who is learning how to read their Bible, a young believer who is learning how to pray in all the other disciplines. They're like Ellis. They're like a child. And Jesus is teaching that if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, the consequences are of great severity. And listen to how he says it. He says it would be better Hear this. It would be better for you to have a 
have, a, have, a, have rope tied around your neck and tied to a millstone and thrown over the boat and drowned. He's teaching it would be better for you to die than to cause one of these little believers who is dependent and who is going to be informed by your life to cause them to sin. And make no mistake about it, this is a great consequence, and this would be real for the disciples. Living in a world where Romans had even taken Jews and done this very punishment, and this great millstone, oh, it's no small millstone. It's a millstone that a donkey would have to pull around, weighing up to about 100 to 150 pounds. Now, is this meaning right here that Jesus is saying, if you cause someone to sin, you should die? No, he's just trying to show you the cost of your sin. He's trying to use emphatic language to say, if you would cause someone else who's trying to grow in their faith and you would lead them astray, this is the great consequence. But notice the word better there. Because death is not even the consequence. You say, wait, what could be worse than death? What could be worse than me having a millstone tied around my neck and hung into the sea? We'll have to see that. Because the millstone, that would be relief from the consequence. Did you hear that? A millstone tied around your neck would be relief from what the consequence of sin would actually do. And so this text informs us. It informs us to watch the way that we walk in front of other believers. And we need to watch the way that we actually begin to influence other people, especially young believers. Because your sin... It is not just personal. Oh yes, it is personal. You are the one who commits it. Make no doubt about it. But it's never just personal. It will continue on to affect others. And so I have two groups that I'm thinking of this morning that this really significantly applies to. And it applies to everybody in here. But one is parents. Parents of children. You just heard exactly how malleable, how formable Ellis is how the way that she walks, the way that she lives, even to picking up a phone is informed by the things that I do. I need to watch the way that I live. I need to watch the way that I talk because one day, it may not be her picking up a phone. It might be her yelling at her mother because who'd she do, see it do first? Who'd she see it do first? Me. And we all need to watch the way we walk, the way we talk, especially for parents. But two, and this is for all of us, as a church who is growing in our children's ministry, wonderful to see those children run out, right? Amen? Praise the Lord. And youth as well. We don't have a big youth group, but we got you know, a small group, right? We got Will and Landry, it's great. As a church, they are walk, watching our lives. They are watching the way we pursue Jesus. They're watching the way that we pursue church. They're watching the way that we talk to one another. They're watching the way that we actually understand the word and if we even want to understand the word. And one day what scares me sometimes is Ellis is gonna grow up and she's gonna reflect more of what I taught her with my life than what I taught her with my mouth. And that will be the same for everyone in here, for all of our younger believers. So I ask you, is your life where you want it so that you could say to Will, one of our youth, or Landry, our other youth, 
I want you to be where I'm at one day spiritually. Because we need it to be. Not saying perfection. I'm not saying you want them to be just like you. But you need to be able to reflect your life into their lives so they're going to be able to grow and be able to replicate their life. One of the saddest things that I've seen in the church is in the relationship sometimes between younger believers and older believers. A lot of times I'll see a younger believer who comes to faith in Christ and they get really passionate about the things of God. They're excited about sharing the gospel. They want to know about the Bible. They want to get really involved and in service. And I'm not saying this is people in here, but I've heard it over and over again. I haven't heard it here, but I hear this all the time. Oh, they're just on fire right now. That'll die out. Die out to be like what? Someone whose Christian life is coming and sitting in a pew for an hour a week? Brothers and sisters, I've heard more of that kind of talk that has caused little babes in the faith to stumble and to become apathetic and lazy and unfaithful in the church. They're not just watching what we say. They're watching what we do. And if your life breathes an apathy of Christianity, do not be surprised when the younger generation breathes worse of unbelief. Watch the way we live. Because the cost of it, oh, it's worth more than your life. So you ask, how could it be worth more than my life? Here's what it is truly worth, your sin. Your sin will cost you something we do not like to talk about and our world very much rejects and even parts of Christianity reject, eternal torment or hell or everlasting punishment. Look at the text with me, verses 43 through 48. And if your hand calls you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands than to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot calls you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye calls you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God than with an eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Jesus is speaking right here that your sin, unstopped, unchecked, living perpetually in you, having an unrepentant lifestyle is going to lead you to the unquenchable, eternal, everlasting fire. And we ask, well, how is it that I don't go there? How is it that I don't get to the unquenchable fire? Jesus gives you his words. He says, your hand, cut it off. Your foot, cut it off too. And your eye, gouge that thing out. Now, you might say, that's obscene and that's gross. I'll say, that's the point. The point is to grab you, but the point isn't to tell you this is actually what you're supposed to do. The reason we just know that is, one, the Old Testament says you are forbidden from mutilating the flesh. You are not supposed to cut off your hand if you actually sin with your hand. There's a reason to it. We'll get to that. Second, Aside from a few odd figures in church history, we don't see a lot of figures walking around with cut off hands and gouged out eyes. And even when you see the rest of the New Testament in the book of Acts, that's not what they're doing when they sin. It's not the picture. So what's Jesus saying right here? 
if he's not saying actually cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye. He's saying three things. With your hand, the thing that you do the most acting with, the most work with, the most doing, you need to watch what you're doing. You need to watch your actions, the things you're up to. With your foot, you need to watch the places you're going. That place that you go that you know that it's going to cause you to stumble because it's going to put you around a certain environment of people or a certain place and a certain kind of thing, you need to watch that. And your eye, you need to watch what you see. See, what Jesus is warning about right here to make it a little bit more tangible is he's warning about your actions. Maybe you are in too intimate of a relationship with a coworker. Maybe you have one too many hugs. Maybe you have gone even farther than that and you are actually in sexual immorality and you are actually committing adultery. The action, right? And he's saying, stop. Cut it off. Take it out of your life and do it right now like cutting off a hand. That's not a small thing that you just saw off. He wants you to stop right now the action that you're in, the place you go. Maybe you're someone who struggles with certain places. Maybe if you go to a sporting event, a football game, you get unrealistically irritable and angry, so much so that you yell at everybody around you. Or maybe, or maybe, I have a bunch of friends who I went to a UK game with last night. That wasn't them though. That's not them. I'm literally not calling them out. Or maybe it's your children's sporting event. And anytime your kid doesn't get a call, you're about to fight the ref and the parent across the way. Cut it off. Cut it off. Jesus is demanding stop. And he's not just saying, don't argue. He's saying, don't go to the game. And he's saying with the coworker who you're a little too handsy with, don't go to work. Stop. Or one that's probably more relevant to any of us, what you see. What do you look at? What do you watch? We watch so many things right now with phones, screens everywhere. Me personally, four years ago, I just had to delete all social media for multiple reasons. One, I became ineffective. I became lazy. I was wasting time on it. Two, I'll be honest, there's a lot of things that I, my eyes shouldn't look at. There's a lot of content out there that is not good for my soul and that is going to cause me to sin. Now notice what I'm cutting off there by taking out all social media. Is social media the sin? No. I'm the problem. I'm the issue. But I need to cut off the source and I need to take it out of my life. So I ask you, because honestly I don't know and the answer is going to be different for every single person, but there is a place you go there's an activity you do. There's something you look at right now in your life. And Jesus is saying, why do you keep it around? And he's even using the imagery of pain. Think about this. Is it painful to lose a hand? Is it painful to lose a foot? Is it painful to gouge out an eye? 
And some of us, maybe we're really struggling. Maybe someone in here is really struggling with pornography and looking at it, and they're just saying, I can't cut it off. I can't get it out of there. It's painful. It might hurt. And Jesus wants you to cut it off from your life. Why should you cut it off from your life? Because the cost is so great. If you continue to live with that perpetual sin in your life on and on and on, listen to what he says in verse 47 at the end of it through 48. And let these hit you, sink in, believer or unbeliever, think about this. He says, end of verse 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes than to be thrown into hell. So he's saying, it'd be better if you went into heaven than without your job, without your phone, or without going to a sporting event. Because hell is like this in verse 48. Where their worm does not die and fire has not quenched. What's the picture Jesus is painting for you? Is hell is an everlasting place. Hell is an eternal torment. Hell and all that is coming with us, which all this punishment, which even if this is figurative language of the worm and the fire, that's not good. It is a screaming and a crying out for eternity if you continue on in sin. A little background for us for a moment. Hell or the word Gehenna in the New Testament would be an actual place. It was a place to the west of Jerusalem. It was actually more of a trash heap, if anything, than a place. And in that trash heap, there was always burning and smoldering fires that were going on. And oftentimes, you'd find necromancers and witches out there casting demons into the area. And hell, to these disciples, they would hear that and they would hear, it's a burning trash heap of demons. And Jesus describes it in eternal words. Jesus is not just saying you're going to the physical place. You're going to the place that's like Gehenna to the west of Jerusalem that burns for all of eternity. And it's never quenched. Brothers and sisters, friends, I ask you, is your sin worth that? Is holding on to that relationship that causes you to sin, is holding on to that job, is holding on to that sport worth the everlasting torment? Sad thing is, many of us will probably continue to hold on after today. But I want to tell you, you have given up more for much less. COVID-19 taught us that very well. So well. And I'm not making a political comment on COVID right here. But listen to this. COVID comes in and we hear that it's going to be a threat to our physical lives. And what did we give up? You have social interaction, family time, you have sports, vacations, school. The list goes on and on. All to protect what? And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. All to protect your physical life. You'll give up lots of things if it comes to saving your flesh. But then when it comes to saving our soul, 
how rare will we actually give up the flesh? You've given it up before. Give it up. The sin that is coming to your mind right now, say, I'm going to walk out here. Maybe it's on your phone right now. You put down a note. Maybe it's in your journal. Maybe it's in your Bible. You write that down. You say, I'm going to cut it off. I'm going to cut it off from my life because it's not worth holding on to that sin and going to hell. Rather, it's better. It's better if you don't have a job, a phone, or that friend group that you love hanging around with and going to heaven. Always. Why? Because you get to be with Jesus. He's always better. Now, I just want to make one qualification to this. I am not... Sometimes people will hear this and they'll say, are you saying someone can lose their salvation because a Christian, you know, they believe the gospel but then they really struggle with their sin? I'm not saying that and I don't think that this was teaching but here's what I think Jesus is teaching. I think Jesus is teaching a true believer, someone who is genuinely converted, genuinely loved the things of God, loves righteousness, loves the gospel, loves the people of God, loves his word on and on these will be present in your life. So understand this. This isn't actually a text for unbelievers. Yes, if you're an unbeliever in here and you don't believe the gospel, you should cut out sin and you should believe the gospel. But if you're a believer in here, you should be cutting off, cutting off, cutting off, cutting off until one day there's going to be nothing left of you. And all that's going to be there is Christ. You guys have already seen this, actually, in the book of Mark. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. The whole purpose was to look like Jesus the whole time. This is how we do it. We kill sin. Because if you don't, as John Owen said once again, it will kill you. It is a disease. It is a cancer that will destroy your life. And if you think, oh, it's just been sitting around for the past 30 years and it hasn't really done much, it's already destroyed your life. If you're saying that statement, it's made you so numb and so callous to that sin that you don't even care about it anymore. Brothers and sisters, cut it off because sin will cost you eternal torment. Now, one last thing that it will cost you, and this is kind of a controversial text, verses 49 through 50. Verse 49 begins this. For everyone will be salted with fire. Stop right there. There's a lot of debate over this text, and I'll be honest, like a lot of these texts in Mark sometimes, I just don't really know what he's talking about. It could mean one thing. He could be continuing on to talk about judgment where he's talking about all people who are going to be judged are going to be salted with fire and experience eternal damnation. That's true in the Bible. That's a biblical truth, so it's possible. Or it could be talking about the fact that believers will be tested with trials and be refined by fires as refined by salt. That's also a possibility because it's kind of the segue into verse 50. Either one, they're both true, and I don't really know what he's saying. But I know what he's doing with it. He's trying to transition to tell you to be salty. He's trying to tell you, you need to be salt of the earth. So listen to what he says in verse 50. He uses kind of a play on words here to shift. Verse 50, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
So Jesus says salt is good. I mean, I love McDonald's fries and I love the salt on them, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. But, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? In its time and in its context, salt would be used for two significant reasons. The first reason that it would be used would be known by the Jews. The Jews would use salt to purify or to cleanse their offerings to God. So if they're going to bring a goat and offer it to God by sacrifice or a bull or a bird or some food or something else they're going to offer it to God, they would put salt on it, sprinkle salt on it to cleanse it. So it's a symbol of cleansing, purification, or in our language that we use, forgiveness, because we don't really talk like that. It's an atonement language. But the second reason that it's also used is it's used for preservation. People would put salt on food to preserve the food. Very good preservative. Many of you probably know this. And what I think Jesus is trying to say is, you need to be like that. You need to be cleansed of your sin. And you need to persevere on in the faith. What is he talking about? Simplify it for us. He's talking about being a Christian. Being salty, having salt in you, looks like someone who is, and this, if you're not a Christian, here's what you need to do. You need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and he will do it by faith. You need to believe the gospel, but then you need to persevere. Oh, and you need to persevere by cutting off that sin, but if you don't cut off that sin, here's what will happen. Saltiness will be lost. And I don't think he's asking a question or making a statement of you can lose your salvation once again. I think what he's just saying over and over again is a believer, they're really salty. A believer believes the gospel actually and they're forgiven of it, but then they persevere. They continue to cut off sin over and over again. And they continue to follow Christ. And Jesus is bringing us to the number one reason why people fall away. And we've seen it all over this text. Sometimes we think people don't believe because science. Or people don't believe because whatever else out there, I don't know. Science, atheism. The number one reason why people aren't salty or they lose their saltiness is because they love their sin. It's because they refuse to cut off sin. And this is the reality we're facing. Jesus wants to teach us a believer always is salty. They believe the gospel and they preserve on in their life. And notice where it ends. This is amazing that he ends this way. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What does the person who doesn't cut off sin do? Remember verse 42? They cause others to stumble. But if you're salty, I want you to be salty. I want you to be cleansed of your sin. Believe the gospel. And I want you to persevere by cutting off sin. You'll be at peace with one another. And you'll have fellowship. And the, op- and the picture is opposite by the end of it. Where if we are repenting of our sin, cutting off sin, exemplifying what it means to be a Christian before others, replicating our Christianity into others well by righteousness and holiness and a love for God, I use the example of Will and Landry. I'll use them again. Think about how awesome 
it would be in a community where they saw everybody exemplifying righteousness and justice and holiness and a love for God. Because like the beginning, sin isn't just about you, it's about a community. Sin will cost you three things. It'll cost you more than your life. It'll cost you eternal torment. And it'll cost you your saltiness, which just means your Christianity. Brothers, sisters, that hair ran really hard for his life. And I bet he even hurt going through those thorn bushes. How hard are you going to fight for your life? your Christianity, for your eternity, even if it hurts, by cutting off a few parts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the message of the gospel because we know we are so insufficient for these things. But God, I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would lead us to cut sin off from our lives. We would watch what we do, the way we act. You would watch the places we would go. We would watch the things that we see. God, I ask that you would guide us by grace and by the power of your spirit to follow you and be faithful to you. God, I ask that if there is, I ask for anyone who in here who is wrestling with these issues, there's sin in their life, they would first turn to you because you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, but begin to cut it off. Make us a church who looks less like ourselves and more like you. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.